Alright, welcome everybody to another episode of the Browns Note Podcast. This is episode 35 and it is week 12. Actually, we've just finished week 12. We're heading into week 13 of the 2015 NFL season. Coming off, look, we found yet another new and exciting way to devastate ourselves this Monday night with a loss against the Baltimore Ravens, 34-27. And when I say new... I mean a new way, because this is literally the only time in NFL history that a game has ended in regulation on what is now being called, of course, a kick six. Never before in the history of the game has a team found its way to lose in such a devastating fashion, And, uh, and we managed to do it, everybody. So kudos to all of you for surviving it, assuming you have. Kudos, of course, to those of you that took video and posted it to the internet of your reactions. Uh, My favorite, of course, being the guy who barely changed expression as he noted that, oh, there's the block, there's the pickup, there's the touchdown, I'm out of here, and just begins walking out of the stadium. Props to you, sir. That was hilarious. Not so much the guy who destroyed his own jersey, because I bet you you there's going to come a day where he regrets that. But nevertheless... 34-27, 34-27, another crappy loss, 2-9. and nine. The season is in the tank, as it were. And, of course, the reason we were all going to be tuning in for the next six weeks went and untuned itself with Johnny Manziel making his decision. We, of course, haven't been back to chat since uh, that happened. The last time we spoke, it was during the bye week podcast. And, of course, we were spending a good deal of time sort of discussing what we hoped to get out of Johnny Manziel for the next six games, what we hope to, to find out one way or the other. And now, of course, at least for the course of this week, we're going to be denied that opportunity by <clears throat> his behavior and the team's decision in the face of that behavior. Um, and frankly, I can see that one either way. I'm not going to spend a ton of time debating it. If you can't understand why the team put him on the bench, then I probably can't help you understand it. So with that, let's talk Baltimore briefly. Let's look ahead to the matchup with Cincinnati, talk a little bit about quarterbacks, talk a little bit about the big picture, and, uh, and then we'll be done with it. Mr. Brendan Leister joining us now from the heart of Ohio. How's it going, man? Pretty good. I was at the game on Monday. It was uh, it was a rough one to say the least, but I've recovered and I'm ready to watch Austin Davis on Sunday. How are you doing? Oh yeah, let's twirl that finger. It's going to be exciting. And actually, I you know it's no it's no you know this isn't shade on uh, on Austin Davis. He's a guy with some talent. He's a guy that a number of NFL teams. I know everybody's going to say, well, nobody signed him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A number of NFL teams have talked about this guy a number of NFL folks have talked about this guy that obviously he's Brett Favre's guy because he went to the same school or whatever but um you know he certainly came in and did a nice enough job so we'll get to all that uh but let's talk real briefly about Baltimore to me <laughs> the story of this game quite frankly it's just you can't give up two touchdowns on special teams you know I, I tweeted out at the beginning of the game oh, that's at ftbl sickness by the way and you can get to mr brendan leister at brendan leister on twitter but i tweeted out you know trust me when i tell you the browns are not equipped to absorb special teams touchdowns by the opponent and damned if they didn't give up two of them and honestly i can't imagine a scenario in which i would expect the browns to win a game like that Otherwise, they probably win the game, right? I mean, you look at the numbers, it was pretty decent across the board in terms of, uh, you know, balance vis-a-vis Cincinnati. And, um, you know, it it was just frustrating to watch again as they just, 
some teams find ways to win, some teams find ways to lose. I mean, the total yards were almost exactly even, and the Browns led by two total yards. Baltimore turned it over twice, the Browns didn't. Um, you know, time of possession was dead even. First downs, the Browns had more of them, 21-16. to 16. I mean, I think watching that game, you had to feel like the Browns were playing better football, but they gave up the two big special teams plays, and, uh, and that pretty much negated everything else they had done. Yeah, I agree completely. You can't give up special teams touchdowns, especially when you're a team like the Browns that uh, has had a lot of trouble with, you know, talent issues, uh, performance, coaching, all of the above. They've had issues across the board, and when those issues spill over to special teams, it just compounds everything. And, you know, they probably would have won that game by, what, 10 points if they don't give up those two touchdowns? Yeah, so. I mean, it's not like Matt Schaub was really doing a Joe Flacco impression there. The Browns were able to more or less contain the Ravens. There were some, you know, familiar issues with the run defense and such, um, mm-hmm. but it wasn't nearly as bad as it's been in other cases. And they had every – I feel like I say this on every podcast. They have every opportunity to win these games. And this one, more than having the opportunity, this, this one really feels like a they really should have won that game and it's hard, <clears throat> you know, it's so frustrating because you want to be able to pinpoint something and blame it on somebody so that that somebody can be fired and instantly fixed. And, of course, that is not the real world, and that is not the way things work. And a bunch of people are probably going to get fired here, and I'm not saying they shouldn't be anymore. Um, but I think, I, th- I think the expectation that that in and of itself is the solution is, is you know, is misguided. You've got a, a team here that got good production out of its offense on the day. I mean, and played pretty decent defense most of the day. They gave up 104 yards rushing, four and a half a carry, so that's that's not great. Um, but they, they took advantage of some Matt Schaub opportunities. Um, you know, they had a lot of young guys out there playing, so this was not a fully stocked defense. So as far as I'm concerned, I actually thought offense, defense, uh, especially given that McCown was clearly not close to healthy even coming into the game, I thought on both sides of the ball – it played pretty well, but, you, you know, <laughs> you go and play pretty well, and then the third phase forgets to do its job, and you lose the football game. Uh, it's just, it's one of those things where people are almost, not only almost, they're absolutely justified in, and they're left with almost no alternative but to just point at coaching, right? Yeah, I agree. Um, the, the, the thing that I'm seeing a lot of is just a lot of confusion on the field, um, rotation issues, substitutions, you know, on the first punt of the game. I'm not referring to the one where they gave up the touchdown. They did have 11 on the field for that one. But the first punt uh, where they were returning the punt from Baltimore, they only had 10 guys on the field. You know, that's that's unacceptable. And then I think there was another special teams play maybe throughout the game. that might, They might have had 10. I'm not 100% sure. I didn't go through every game in count, but I thought I heard someone say that. I know for sure that they only had 10 on the first one. Um, and then like on defense, just guys, like there was one play I remember where Justin Gilbert started to run across the field with a guy in motion. They told him, Hey, you got to stay on your side. Uh, you know, the other players on defense told him that. So then he starts to run back that way. Shaw recognizes it. He just hits the guy really quick for an out. They gain seven yards, stuff like that. The guys aren't prepared. There's constantly guys lining up wrong. They're, um, questioning what they're supposed to do they're throwing their hands up they don't know what to do that's all coaching you know like like we say on our coaching staff i know it's at the high school level but still if you're not coaching it you're you're allowing it or you're supporting it 
You know, if you're not coaching it, you're a proponent of it. So you need to be coaching it all the time. I just, I'm not, I'm not convinced that these coaches are um, coaching the players and instilling the discipline and the knowledge and the techniques that they need to have to be successful. And I think I see that a lot on the defensive side, and I think a lot of that is from an inexperienced defensive coordinator who might be in over his head. Uh, that's just my take on it. That's the way I see it. I've been seeing it all year, so I don't know how to feel about it. Yeah, you know, I, I feel the same way, basically. I mean, I'm sure O'Neal has a more than firm grasp schematically of what's going on in his defense. Um, I, I just I don't believe that he's a total moron who do, doesn't have any football knowledge. That's not what this is. This is, to me, um, a, a problem of not quite understanding the breadth and scope of the job and not being able to understand that the little details of how things get communicated and the management of people and so on and so forth is part of the job as much as um, calling the right play or devising the right scheme ahead of time in a game plan. And that, that to me is where you're talking about communication issues, substitution. To me, it's the detail stuff, um, mm -hmm. like the really stupid little minute details that that to me is the difference between great football and average NFL football. I mean, if you look at what goes on in New England, the, you can watch those mic'd up videos like from the Super Bowl, right? And the crispness with which substitutions are made, it's, it's, even on that last play, total chaos going on, the one where Malcolm Butler ends up picking off the pass. They're in total control because, the, number one, they know what they're going to call in that situation, period. They've already decided it. They've already pre prepped it up. But number two, they've got four dudes in a line just perfectly relaying each instruction, you know, and it's, it's, you start to think about, and, and again, this is strictly an organizational comparison. This is not a real-life analogy, but you, you start to think about why football coaches read military strategy and, and read military theory about, you know, flexibility and communication and all that kind of stuff. It's all because those little details are what wins in real life battles or warfare and in, in football, it wins games. And, um, that I agree with you. It's just a mess out there. Um, when, the, when the defense is on the field, when offense is on the field, really, I feel like it's a lot smoother. And, and this is something else I've talked about a couple of times this season, but you know, just watching the, the O'Neill midweek presser versus the DiFilippo midweek presser, it's like, two completely different universes of comfort and control. DiFilippo looks like a guy who is daring you to ask him a question that's going to piss him off. And it's not because he's going to go off on you. It's because he's loving his job. And he's got a very firm sense of who he is and what he wants to be and what is going right and what's going wrong. He's not going to tell you anything he doesn't feel like he needs to tell you. And he knows how to command the room. Whereas O'Neill, it feels like a guy... And I don't want to say in over his head, but that's kind of how it feels. It feels like a guy who is defensive, who doesn't have the full confidence of his convictions right now, uh, or who does and feels like he shouldn't have to explain it to anybody you know, despite the poor performance. And that, to me, if you're defensive like that, um, there's a reason. And, and things aren't going well, and he knows it, and you've got to just be willing to acknowledge it better than they have and quite frankly you got to be willing to address it better than they have so leaving behind the Baltimore game a little bit actually entirely because what the hell else is there to say about that nonsense um, but I'm just looking at broad number broad like league-wide rankings right if you go on to pro football reference each team page uh, for every season it, it keeps it up 
concurrently as the season goes. So you can kind of see, you know, where your team lies uh, vis-a-vis the rest of the league with respect to any number of things. And so let's start here. Points differential. The Browns are negative 97 on the season, which is 31st in the league. They've scored 213 points at 19.4 per game, which is 28th of the 32 teams in the NFL. They've allowed 310 points per game, or 310 total points for 28.2 per game, which is 31st in the league. So they are fourth worst in the NFL on offense in scoring. I should say in scoring. They are second worst in the NFL in allowing points. There's no way to win games that way. Um, and there's no way to defend the coaching staff when they are as bad as that. And let's get a little deeper into it, shall we? This team was put together on the notion that to win football games in the NFL, uh, you either need to have, number one, a great quarterback, which we all knew they didn't have, and so the way they intended to win games, uh, and they talk about it like crazy, and we can debate the merits of this in the year 2015 and the way the league's put together, but they talk about running the ball and stopping the run. Well, all righty. League rank, offense, rushing. <clears throat> they are 30th in the league in rushing attempts. They are 32nd, dead freaking last in rushing yards. They are 32nd, dead freaking last in yards per attempt. League rank defense, rushing. 31st. In attempts allowed, that means people are running on them all day long. Yards, 31st yards allowed. That means people are running on them all day long. Yards per attempt, they're, they're 27th and you know, best in the league, which means they're, what, fifth worst in the league in yards per attempt. This is a team that can neither run the ball or stop the run. And I, I got to tell you, in both instances, it's totally baffling to me that they are as bad as they are. And at some point, yeah, it's coaching, but the bottom line is you have to start coming to the conclusion that they don't have enough of the right players. Yeah, I do think that's true. I think there's merit to that. Um, I mean, just watch, for example, Isaiah Crowell came into the season as a starting running back, and if you watch him run the ball, it's it's a joke. Um, there's holes there. He doesn't find them. He doesn't run with any patience. Um I, I'm pretty done with him at this point. I mean, he's a good athlete. He makes play here and there, but he's, he's always been too up and down. Um, I, I agree. The players, some of the players are not there, but I think that they have a better, they have a better recipe overall than they did last year, I would say, to succeed in the run game and, and, and run defense. I think one factor in all this was Andy Moeller not being with the team this year. I think he was a huge part of what they did. Anytime you lose your offensive line coach, it's big, but yeah. especially when it happens, what, week one? I mean, I think that's a huge issue. I think that's the reason we've seen Cam Irving struggle so badly because they have an assistant O-line coach who's now the O-line coach, and I don't even know if they have an assistant now. So you have a unit where there was two guys paying attention to the technique probably coaching different things all the time, always on those guys, and then all of a sudden you get rid of one of them right before the season. I think that, that's been a huge issue with the run game. Um, run defense-wise, I would say that the personnel is not not where it needs to be. Um, they just need an infusion of talent and athleticism in the front seven across the board, in my opinion. Um, youth also, I think they just need to improve through the draft. They have to draft those guys. I think Drafting guys like, you know, like I've talked about them a lot, but Nate Orchard in the second round, 
he hasn't been bad. Um, he hasn't been bad per se, but like he doesn't bring anything as a rusher. And then in the run game, he's not really making impact plays. He's just out there kind of to set the edge. He's playing more than any other outside linebacker on the team right now. So I think those kind of picks where you're drafting guys that have limited athletic ability um, in the second round is kind of questionable just moving forward. I think they need to add more athleticism, um, especially on the D-line. Inside linebacker, they need to add some youth, some playmaking ability. And an outside linebacker, just on the edge in general, they just really need to infuse some young uh, athletic ability. Yeah, I mean, there's no doubt about that. <laughs> and it's really kind of frustrating because you feel like, man, they've spent a lot of draft capital on some of those spots, and, and it's still kind of kind of mediocre looking out there. Although, again, I, I do keep going back to, you know, they do – what those Browns coaches say about how – they have a lot of stretches of playing pretty good defense is, to me, absolutely true. Um, but the problem is, and O'Neill sort of, in my view, unwittingly discussed this on his, uh, in his presser this week, was the problem is that they get gashed for these huge plays far too frequently, and it's not like it's any one thing. They're gashed every so often, no matter which defense they're in you know and O'Neill's talking about it. it's like well we're in this one and we get gashed well then we're in this one and we get gashed and I'm sitting here on the on the computer going yeah that's the whole problem buddy can we fix that please and um you know so I, I think they don't really have a good handle on why that is I think they're probably frustrated with some of their personnel um but I think our frustrations with things like Barkevious Mingo getting all of 19 snaps on that Monday night game you know I think our frustrations are at least as valid as any they might have because I don't get how you've spent this kind of draft capital on a guy like Mingo and people are talking. I'm stunned that we're out here screaming about how Gilbert and Manziel don't get played when Mingo's actually a good freaking player and they don't play him. Um, I mean, I get the Manziel thing, and that's a whole other question. We'll talk about that in a minute. But they, as we have said and talked about, and certainly it's not just you and I, it's everybody else we've had on the podcast and it's all kinds of other Browns observers, is they have a really bizarre use pattern, especially to me on the defensive side of the ball, but even on offense, you know, they've there've been moments where Duke Johnson just disappears inexplicably. And so to me, part of that I'm willing to accept from young first-time coaches, and that's what you've got, and you've got to suck it up and accept that. But um, But part of it is just, to me, at some point, they're being stubborn or, or missing the boat on who's talented and who's still learning and all that stuff. So I, I have all kinds of questions about that and, you know, whatever. We've discussed that stuff ad nauseum on this podcast. But let's do discuss the quarterback situation just a little before we go into, um, before we go into say, the rest of the season and, and a couple of big-picture issues in the Cincinnati game. Um, all right, so the Manziel decision. Let me just get my little two seconds out and – We'll see what you think about it, and then we'll finally get it out of our hair. But to me, I, I totally understand where Pettin's come from, and I think he was left with very little choice. If if a petulant little kid is going to defy your owner, as the reports go, and defy your head coach, as the reports go, um, it really doesn't matter, despite the protestations of so many others, it really doesn't matter what he was caught doing. It, it's not, that's not the issue. The issue isn't that he was out having a drink with his buddies. The issue isn't that he allowed himself yet again to be put on the internet looking like a college buffoon while he's in the middle of an NFL season. I don't think anybody cares if that happens in April. 
but it didn't happen in April. It happened the week he got named the starting quarterback and the week he told his owner and coach he wouldn't go do it. And that's why he's getting sat down. And frankly, it's super disappointing because I think I believe the coaches when they say, look, we were excited to have him out there. You know, they were they wouldn't have handed him the job if they didn't think he had made strides. And I think they do think he's made strides. And I think they understand better than a lot of people commenting on it that a 22-year-old kid with his history is probably still going to screw up some more. And they're just going to have to be patient about it if they ever want to get dividends from him. And here's the thing that I, I will never quite recognize why people don't allow for this in the commentary, and that's the following. Um, he's still under contract for two more years if they want him to be. I mean, look, we may be done with him. They may have decided to move on. They may trade him to Dallas and all that. I don't know about that. I don't know about that. You've got a lot of people at the very top of the organization that are pretty invested in the dude. And um, I, I just I, I struggle to see this as the vendetta or the stupidity that, any, that, that a lot of people do. So that's where I'm at with that. I know they also like Austin Davis, so I'm sure that's part of the decision this week is that, hey, we put this guy behind Davis. We like Davis. Davis came in and did a decent job as the number two. So let's give Davis the next crack at it. And I'm, I'm honestly fine with that. I, I expect to see both guys again this season either way. And, uh, and I actually am not as convinced as most people are that this is the pure end for Johnny Manziel in Cleveland. So that's where I'll leave it there. Why don't you give me your two cents on the quarterback situation? Yeah, we're on the same page for the most part. Um, the Manziel decision to bench him, I mean, that obviously came from him lying to the organization lying to all these people that were putting their trust in him. That's that's the big thing. You know, when, when he was named the starting quarterback, it was them saying, we trust you to go out and lead our football team and represent our organization in a positive way and help us the bye week. And help us feed our kids. You know, this that's what I – people – there's just way too much forgetting about what is at stake here for a lot of people. Um, on the other hand – actually, go ahead and finish your point, and I'll, and I'll make this next one afterward. Go ahead. Yeah, well, just he played well against the Steelers. You know, they were excited. They were excited moving forward about him. I'm sure that they want to see him more this season. But right after Austin Davis came into that game and did pretty well, he put him in a position to win the game. I know that he probably should have ran out of bounds on that one play, but it doesn't matter. They had two timeouts. I was sitting in my chair like, it doesn't really matter. They still have two timeouts, you know? So um, I just – I think that we're going to see both guys later this year. And, uh, and I think they both bring talent to the table, and they're both young guys. And I just hope that Manziel finally gets his head on straight at some point um, because eventually it's going to catch up to him and nobody's going to be giving him chances anymore. But I, I hope that he's not out of chances yet because we both agree that he has a ton of talent and he has a chance to be a really great player, at least in my opinion if he finally just, you know, is finally all in with football is kind of what I want him to be, and I think that's what the organization mm-hmm. wants him to do. He just needs to represent himself and the organization in a positive manner um, at all times. Yeah. It, you know, I actually I don't have a lot of questions right now about whether he's all in with football. I just – my interpretation of all these events as a as a collective is he's a 22 year old kid who does not have any idea how much he does not know about the way the world works yet and he's immature which is not an excuse that's his his job is the same job a lot of 22 year old 
quarterbacks have right now, but he's not as equipped as some of them to deal with it. I mean, it's nice to wish everybody come in and be, you know, Russell Wilson maturity-wise, but that ain't going to happen. And some guys take a little longer. And just as an example, there was a great piece. Um, I, th- I think it was on ESPN, and I feel badly for not remembering exactly where it was, but I saw it re- retweeted by Jeremy Fowler. I retweeted it into the timeline at some point, so you can find it. But there's a piece on Brett Favre with a bunch of stories being told by the old guys that used to play quarterback with him and coach him in Green Bay. And let's just say um, – there's some familiarities in there. You know, there's a lot about what went on with Favre in the early part of his career uh, that could be analogized with what goes on with Johnny in the early part of his. The difference, of course, is that Johnny has not yet taken the league completely by storm as Favre did uh, pretty quickly. Uh, then again, Favre was a little older. So let's just kind of see how the season plays out. Let's see how the offseason plays out. This may all be moot. You can obviously imagine that there's a, a world in which the organization has already decided it's moved on, but I tend to think that that is probably not the fact of the matter just yet. I, I think it's maybe more likely than not that they will, um, or at least attempt to, uh, but, but we'll see. I, I don't want to get too far ahead of that. So let's talk about the Cincinnati game coming up. Uh, obviously, since the Browns beat up on Cincinnati a few games ago, uh, the last couple have been not particularly pleasant. Johnny Manziel started them both, did awfully in the first one, played, you know, a little better in the in the next one, which was earlier this season. Uh, but still, that was the game in which, of course, or following which Stephen White ran that piece that broke down all the obvious easy throws that Johnny just was simply not taking or was missing. And, and then the next week, uh, he came out and looked so much better against Pittsburgh. And so it would have been fun – I mean, to me, that's what I was looking forward to this week was to seeing whether Johnny could play against that same defense, which was probably going to play him similarly uh, with some wrinkles, um, uh, see if he could be substantially better. But on the other hand, I can imagine where the coaches might have just said, you know, he hasn't looked too good against this defense. Let's just maybe see what Austin has. So um, it'll be interesting. You know, obviously Cincinnati a heavy favorite in this game and and with good reason. I mean – they're ridiculous. They're nine and one, and they're going to score all kinds of points. And their defense is really solid. Um, they're on the road, but they're five and zero oh on the road this season. So I don't have a whole lot of uh, reasons for optimism for Browns fans. Uh, I think I think you're tuning in basically to watch some of your young guys get some more reps, find out if Austin Davis has anything for you, um, and uh, and to enjoy your little Sunday, I suppose. What do you What do you I mean, when you watch a game like this at this stretch of the season, what are you looking for from a young, messed-up team like the Browns? <laughs> young, messed-up team. That's pretty funny. They aren't even um, that young, which is depressing, but yeah. Yeah, I mean, just focus on the young guys. Focus on the development of those players. Try to try to isolate what they're doing and not pay so much attention to maybe the outcomes. For example, if the team runs for – a 50-yard run or something. Pay attention to what that one guy did on the play rather than looking at the end result of the entire play because three other guys might have missed their assignment. He might have done a good job on that play. So that doesn't mean that he did poorly just because the play resulted in 50 yards the other direction. So try to focus on um, what, you know, for example, a guy like Travis Benjamin, pay attention to what he does, pay attention to, Cam Irving, maybe he'll make some strides. Um, look at if Justin Gilbert's going to get another chance to play because I would, well, I guess he's got the concussion now, but um, if he were to be cleared, 
I would like to see him get some more playing time because he wasn't really tested a whole lot last week. Uh, pay attention to guys like, you know, Orchard, Xavier Cooper. We've got young guys on this roster, um, guys with talent. So just try to pay attention to the young guys. And then also, I really don't get wrapped up too much in if they win or lose because uh, I like to pay attention to the draft. I like to evaluate the prospects. And at this point, the first the first overall pick is pretty uh, pretty. Enticing. It looks pretty good to me right now. <laughs> yeah, it's enticing. Exactly. So that's kind of the way I look at it. I don't really care if they win or lose because yeah, I don't either. The first overall pick versus them learning how to win. Yeah, and they're not. And honestly, I don't know. I I, I think. Yeah, I don't. The way I don't these think last couple learn of, how to win. Yeah, the way these last couple of games have gone, it feels like a team just kind of eventually, you know, it's wilting a little bit. But we'll see. I mean, they did play hard. I, I don't mean that they're quitting. I just mean they're feeling like they won't find ways to win. You know, that's what it seems like. But mm-hmm. um, yeah, I guess I care about the first overall pick. You know my feelings on it. I'm certainly not. I haven't studied everybody as much as I would like yet, and so this is all with reservation to to change my mind later. But I haven't seen the quarterback yet, and I've seen the big names. Um, I haven't seen the guy yet that I'm jumping out of my skin to take up that that high. Um, So there's that fact. There's the fact that I feel like, you know, anywhere in that top five this year, they're going to be able to get somebody they need and can use. But, um, you know, obviously you have your preferences and the higher up you go on the board, the better chance of getting the guy you want. So of course it'd be better to have the number one pick than the number four pick. Uh, and of, and you know, worst case scenario, you end up with some beast from Ohio state or some really freaky wide receiver from say Ole Miss or something like that. So we'll see, (laughs) we'll see what happens. Uh, we'll get to plenty of draft talk, of course, a little further down the road because uh, I don't know about you, but I'm not yet remotely studied up on these guys. No. Um, and, and I'd like to be before I start offering opinions as to, and frankly, I'd like to know who's going to be making the pick and coaching the picks and all that. So we'll jump off some of these bridges when we get to them. So for now, let's keep it to the immediate. Let's talk about Browns, Bengals. Uh, I suppose give me your uh, your best case scenario for a Browns victory since we are still maintaining the illusion that we're going to pick the Browns to win every game. Go ahead, man. Uh, I'm just going to say 24 to 23. Somehow they score three touchdowns and a field goal, and they win against the Bengals. I don't see how that happens. But. <laughs> <laughs> I'll say 20 to 17 Browns and all the same commentary. Look, they're not as good as the Bengals, um, and frankly – they're they're still finding ways to shoot themselves in the foot. You know, they've showed up, you know, in certain games, and and it's like, well, if you can play this well, like for example, the game when they beat up on the Bengals last year, right? you know, if you can play that well in one game, I I, I just don't understand where it disappears to uh, for weeks at a time. But clearly, it has, and at this point, it feels like it's disappeared for most of a year, and uh, we'll see if they can find it again. So there you have it, ladies and gentlemen, our very optimistic predictions for this Sunday's game at home against the Bengals. I hope those of you attending find ways to enjoy it, revel in each other's company, revel in the uh, in the remaining games of the football season, because once again, winter is coming, folks. Let's not forget. 
And with that, I will offer you, uh, once again, the Twitter handles. I am at FTBL Sickness. You can follow Brendan Leister at Brendan Leister on Twitter. Oh, and also follow the podcast itself. There's a separate, uh, separate feed, and it may eventually become sort of the site for my live tweeting of games because it's a little, it's a little thick during the games for, for some folk. But at any rate, the, the podcast handle is at the Browns Notes. So with that, we leave you. This has been episode 35 of the Browns Note podcast. Leaving you from Dog Pound West in Orange County, California. Thanks for listening, everybody. Go Browns. Go Browns.